Um, welcome, everyone, once again, to the Conversations That Matter podcast. Uh, as always, uh, we have a, a special show for you today that hopefully will be encouraging and informative, and um, I trust it, it will. It definitely will. Uh, it, it's something that I mentioned that we're going to talk about, but I haven't delved in deep. And so to help me with this subject, and the subject, of course, is the United Methodist Church, uh, we have uh, Pastor Jeffrey Rickman with us. He's a former UMC pastor up until about three weeks ago in Oklahoma. And uh, he has a podcast called Plain Spoken, if you want to check out more of Pastor Rickman's ministry. So, uh, Jeffrey, thank you for joining me. Real happy to join you, John. So let's start at the beginning, if that's okay. And I don't know where the beginning exactly is. I thought maybe 2019, when there was a vote to affirm a traditional um, stance on marriage and, and or uh, I don't know if it was marriage or, or just uh, gay clergy to, to make sure that that wasn't uh, approved of. But I thought that was a good move. And I think a lot of listeners out there who aren't in the UMC heard about that and thought that was a good move. Mm-hmm. And now there's churches leaving all over the place. And I know you are, um, like I said in the, in the intro, you, you were just recently in the UMC. Now you're not. So what's going on right now? So 2019 is a good um, uh, touchstone. Uh, it, it's the um, the final chapter in a, a lead up that actually began uh, more than 100 years ago. But briefly in 2019, there was what was called a special called General Conference. United Methodist Church meets every four years. But in 2016, the, the liberals uh, were not prevailing as they thought that they would and should. And there was uh, chaos all over the floor of the general conference. Um, I, don't, I don't know how much you or your audience would know, but the United Methodist Church is not governed by bishops or a judiciary. It's governed by a council, and that's the general conference, which meets every four years. It's the only body that can speak for our doctrine, our discipline, our way of life. Uh, in 2016, things were falling apart, and things got bad on the floor of general conference. They asked the bishops to lead which I now think was a mistake. But at the time, it's like, yeah, the bishops, that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to oversee and lead. So we, uh, they uh, had three years where they um, scheduled out in 2019 a general conference where we would once and for all figure out what the United Methodist stance on sexual ethics would be. Uh, that would be the right-leaning language. The left-leaning language would be uh, we were going to decide the, the role and place of LGBTQ persons in the church. So it did speak to uh, whether or not we would uh, consecrate and bless uh, non uh, 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 non marriages, uh, gay people as married or non binary, whatever. We just had a non binary marriage, and that caused the whole thing. But um, anyway, we we made the right decision, and it wasn't just the African. We do have an African church, a Filipino church that generally skew conservative. They are growing, of course. Um, the liberal contingents in America and Europe are shrinking, but they have lots of money. And so that's where the the real uh, power dynamic has been. So at 2019, uh, the bishops presented three potential plans, one that allowed us to kind of stay together, but have our own corners, have our own centers of power that were non-geographical. We would be affiliated with what were called jurisdictions. It was very complicated. Nobody really liked it, but they presented it um, anyway. Then there was the one church plan where everybody gets to just do what's right in their own eyes and nobody gets in trouble for it. So you could still have conservative clergy and liberal clergy operating alongside one another. Some version of that had always been presented at every quadrennium uh, in my memory. Um, Conservatives staunchly stood behind that. The bishops almost didn't even present the traditional plan which supported our, our stance that we already had on sexual ethics, um, but it, it, it gave it teeth. We had so much uh, ecclesiastical disobedience among the clergy and so many, um, our smaller regional government governing bodies or our annual conferences and bishops would serve over an annual conference. And there were many conferences that were essentially in rebellion that were just not going to defend um, our shared covenant, which is called the Book of Discipline. That's what the general conference would come up with every four years. So anyway, they didn't they didn't even want to present the, the traditional plan. It was forced onto the floor. It was adopted by a majority, a decent majority. Some liberals would say not a, a big enough majority, but it was what it was. We carried the day. Um, it was really nasty. And then after that, um, liberals refused to accept the verdict. There was a lot of rhetoric leading up to it. God is going to make his will known. We're going to go with it. Afterwards, they welched. They refused to leave. 
And um, we were supposed to have a general conference in 2020, the year afterwards, to um, ensconce the New Deal, help the liberals leave. There was what was called a protocol protocol for peaceful uh, separation where um, uh, we were going to have a, a split and then uh, COVID happened and ruined everything. And conservatives were so frustrated. Liberals weren't leaving. They were in open rebellion. At that point, we had one gay bishop. Uh, since then, we've gotten another gay bishop. Nothing any of us can say about it. There are clergy all over the United States that are performing gay wedding ceremonies. We have openly gay clergy and bishops just refusing to exercise discipline. I keep saying we because yeah, I've I understand. But I've, I've grown up. I mean, I was born into the United Methodist Church. Anyway, it was such a frustrating situation that eventually conservatives were like, we got to leave. So there was a, an advocacy group within the denomination called the Wesleyan Covenant Association that served as a midwife for a new denomination that's now called the Global Methodist Church, under which I was ordained this last Saturday as an elder. Well, I, I guess I should say congratulations, but it feels a little bittersweet, I suppose. Uh, so COVID is, it, it, w this was an opportunity, it sounds like, for the more progressive leaning uh, or liberal leaning wing to uh, push things out so that, that the consequences of that 2019 vote wouldn't come to fruition. Is that what I'm understanding correctly? So the, the 2019 vote did come into fruition and there was nothing could be done about it. You can okay. find on online the corrections and errata. Uh, the, the general conference of 2020 was uh, allowed for a plan that um, would not be punitive for churches that wanted to split off that leaned left. Um, there was a paragraph 25 that was adopted in 2019 that um, they passed because they were up against it at the end and were running out of time. They didn't realize that when they said that they would have to pay for unfunded pension liabilities, that that expense would be super big. They designed it for liberals as a gracious means for them to exit. Um, and then another path was authored for uh, a graceful exit of conservatives. All of that was supposed to be presented at General Conference 2020. But um, the institution, um, what happened in 2020 wasn't necessarily scandalous. What happened in 2021 and then especially in 2022 was very scandalous. They okay. could have and should have called the General Conference together uh, to figure out an amicable split. They uh, they looked at the cards on the table and decided they went, had a winning hand and decided just to postpone everything until 2024. And that's after the disaffiliation provision expires. So everybody would essentially be trapped at that point. And so all the conservative churches said, hey, let's just use the provision designed for liberals. It has some language in there that we can we can work with as to why we're leaving. And um, that's what you're seeing right now is a mass exodus um, of at least 10 percent of the churches in America. Um, a lot of our largest, richest churches are just tired of the dysfunction, however they feel about um, yeah. sexual ethics. Um, and everybody is surprised at how many are navigating this labyrinthine punitive process to get out. And and conferences, bishops and their district superintendents in many places are, some in some places, just refusing to even enact what the Book of Discipline says. In other places, they're adding on lots of um, additional hurdles or they're moving the goalposts. Um, and even despite all that, uh, a ton of churches are, are getting out while they can. Okay. So I, I have a ton of questions. Um, for sure. those who aren't in the UMC or are not familiar with the polity. So you have the book of discipline, which is essentially the, the, like a constitution, I suppose, or, or yeah, it is a, not a replacement for the Bible. We have the right. Bible. The Bible alone has God's word. The book of discipline is how we live together as a contained unit denomination, um, right? Share our, our our from how we run the local church to what kind of polity we have to what our theology is, our doctrinal standards. All of that's in the book of discipline. Okay, so you you have this uh, annual assembly that votes on on important matters, uh, and that and and then the bishops are they the ones that hold the most uh, authority in the denomination? Then, so. Uh, every four years, the whole general conference, the whole worldwide United Methodist Church gets together. And then every year, every annual conference gets together. So I the see. general conference is made up of all the annual conferences. It's very much like our federal government, where you have representatives sent from each state to the federal government. Well, we have every annual conference to the general conference. We have delegates. Because you mentioned district superintendents and then bishops. So what's the yeah. difference for people who don't know? So when Methodism first started off, we were a revival movement within the Church of England. 
right. when they brought that revival over to in- uh, America, there was a split from the Church of England for obvious reasons. We became our own denomination. John Wesley, who is the original Methodist founder, um, brainchild of all this, he he designated superintendents, not bishops, to come over here and lead. However, once they were in charge long enough, they claimed that title of bishop, and then they they or ordained not ordained they designated certain elders under them as superintendents who would oversee like um uh we call them districts um, I see. but but counties you know or whatever they'd be like anyway so um yeah you have bishops at the top but their power is supposedly limited one of the dysfunctions of the umc is that bishops have over it's it's like the federal government again. yeah it sounds exactly like right the executive yeah. grabs power and they're allowed to do so because they have full-time jobs. They've gotten control of the bu- – we have a bureaucracy. We have 13 general boards and agencies that very much uh, mirror the the function or dysfunction of our, our, our federal government. And then you have a judiciary, but they're part-time. And then you have a legislative, but they're part-time. So the executive, which is full-time, has the bureaucracy, which is full-time, and they've essentially done a hostile takeover of what is supposed to be a conciliar government. Okay. Um, that, that's helpful. Thank you for explaining that. So the situation as it stands in the UMC is is the split or or I don't even know if it, it, the factioning, whatever you want to call this is yeah. happening in real time. My understanding is there's been well, there's been over 2000 churches. Is that right so far? Yeah. Or is that yeah, it, it is? OK, so. Yeah. So over the course of last year and then this year that we're holding, uh, you remember, we had a special called general conference to take that once and for all. Vote. Yes. Now we have special called annual conferences. They, they typically, most annual conferences are not handling disaffiliations during their regularly scheduled uh, conferences. Rather, they're, they're scheduling special called conferences, some online, some in person, where they will just process the ratification of churches that have gone through the disaffiliation process. So that size, though, if it's over 2000 churches, that is larger than I think the Evangelical Free Church. And I'm trying to think the. That, that's probably larger than a few denominations that oh yeah we're there gmc is already a huge denomination it, yeah okay so th- this is this sounds um this is fast and it sounds like this has been in the works then for a few years the, the planning of this because you don't have administration right off the, at the ground floor usually so this has been in the works well we only um, barely do have yeah now i'm saying we for the gmc gmc right now we yeah Yeah, you're you're in the GMC now. Yeah, we barely have an administrative structure in place. And one of the things I mean, we're trying is the rhetoric is and I I think most of people in leadership mean it is we're not going to be UMC 2.0. We have a lot of the same uh, doctrinal standards for obvious reasons. But one, we're actually going to enact our book of doctrines and discipline. But two, uh, we're all agreed that the superstructure of the denomination in the United Methodist Church was way too big, bloated, sclerotic. From the beginning, they're very committed to a, a, a much smaller administrative structure. And so or they're not centralized. Yeah. yeah, they're they've already capped what we call apportionments. The local church pays the the connectional. Um, <laughs> it's not a fee, but it's a membership dues. I don't know. Uh, they've yeah. capped it at six percent right now. I mean, we don't even have an annual conference where we are. We have not even a provisional conference. It's called anyway. It's nerdy. There's no money involved in a lot mm-hmm. of places. And so you have a lot of people serving that are spread really thin, um, a lot of volunteers, a lot of people that are not paid very much. It's it's like the pioneer days where there's a lot of growth and at the top levels, there's not yet money or structure to support. Okay, kind of okay so that, contra- that contradicts what I just said then, because I assume there would be some of that uh, organization. They had time and- to plan. Yeah, but just nobody imagined the tsunami that would take. I mean, it's just so hard to imagine when you've had this institution in place for half a century. Yeah, you know, 1968, it took the reins from the previous predecessor, um, and it had been shrinking every year since our formation in 1968. But even so, it's still a huge behemoth organization. And then to imagine taking 10 percent of all yeah. of its component churches and organizing them in in any period of time under five years it's just it's a huge task yeah yeah i I, please pray for the this new budding denomination that wants to retain orthodoxy um a lot of the churches are in the south that are leaving is that correct i would be interested in seeing a map um yes 
it's hard to so what the what the left is trying to portray um, is that you have a bunch of Trump voters, ignorant bigots in the Midwest and South, right, 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 that just <laughs> don't want to deal with uh, people of color, and we just want to have our 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 white um, privileged ways protected, and um, it just so happens in the South, you know, where red state red uh, conservative culture is stronger yes our annual conferences are more amenable to letting churches go that want to and in the north uh, in both coastal regions you have bishops that straight up are refusing to let churches go Uh Um, it's much more you go through a lot more uh, turmoil as a pastor and as a local church if you try to exit the amazing thing is that there's still a ton of churches in coastal regions and in the north that are trying to, despite all of the um, complications and 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 hostility in the way, um, a lot of conservative churches that aren't leaving are being actively closed against their will against by their annual conferences, and that's something I'm about to start reporting on. I've reported on one church in North Carolina that oh was closed against its will that was trying to disaffiliate. Um, oh. there's another one I'm about to, to report on in Eastern Ohio that was closed against its will. And they weren't even trying to disaffiliate. They were just conservative. And, you know, the mask is off now. Yeah. Uh, American leadership is going left and they are tired of these, uh, conservatives holding on and just staying ignorant in their bigoted ways, you know? Uh, yeah, it sounds like the common story that it's ha- it's it's similar to what's happening in the Southern Baptists. Of course, their polity is completely different, so it's not going down the same way in the PCA. And um, you know, up here in New York, where I live right now, if you pass a Methodist church, you, you expect to see a rainbow flag out front, mm-hmm. uh, United Methodist Church. And um, I remember because I have some cousins in Mississippi who are, are ministers in the UMC, and and of course, they would not approve of that. And it's it's just it's such a stark contrast. And I've wondered for years and I mean, because this is going back, I mean, I at least a decade, I I would uh, be used to seeing that kind of imagery uh, up here in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, I wondered how these two groups of people were able to exist in the same denomination and cooperate together. And now I I guess that that's coming to an end. They they really can't. And that's that's Mm -hmm. the where the rub is. Um, But I think the. The thing that would be beneficial for people to understand in all of this, one of them, is that it is how the left did it. In other words, and I'm talking about theological liberals as well as political liberals. They tend to go together. But how how did they, the people with the rainbow flags out in front of their church, gain control in a denomination that even I would 15 years ago, I mean, it would be unheard of, the kinds of things that are approved of now uh there wouldn't be the votes wouldn't even be close on these issues so what what kind of lessons have you seen from where you're sitting that to, to take away to, to prevent the new denomination you're in from having the same problem okay <laughs> it's so hard to contain this because i mean it's like a two-hour thing right you know like um and I'm going to say a couple names that, you know, uh, the the primary people that have informed me as to how leftism, progressivism has um, taken over these institutions. Um, I know you don't think much of James Lindsay, but he's really articulated it quite well. Um, the other guy, who's the guy who's in Florida, who's working for DeSantis, taking the colleges back over? Uh, oh, Christopher Rufo? There it is. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Both, both Lindsay and Rufo have uh, explained systematically how the long march through the institutions took place. Right. What their ideological undergirdings are. Um, it's taken me for a long time to understand this. I grew up kind of uh, scoffing at um, the Red Scare as though Marxism was ever a threat. Um, to oh, America. yeah. McCarthyism. And yeah. But but the thing is, uh, neo-Marxism is, is alive and well. Um, and and I it's, I mean, it's not as though there's a central leader, a central place you can point to a central book. I mean, there are several books and several, several leaders and thinkers over the last hundred years that you can point to, but leftism, progressivism, um, very much, uh, values centralized power, uh, federalism, um, kind of the leftist equivalent. Right now, the reactionary right is responding with like, uh, Christian nationalism or like, um, a centralized right-leaning authority, like we've got this this power struggle going on. But typically within the United Methodist Church, conservatives don't 
don't worship at the altar of power like that. They do typically worship at the altar of growth and financial prosperity, mm-hmm. but um, they, they haven't valued the efforts that the left has. You know, the left doesn't have mega churches. The left might really? have some. Yeah, in the United Methodist Church, we had like Glide Memorial in San Francisco. And then finally a bishop closed them down because they weren't, no, she didn't close them down. She, I've been reporting on this Bishop Minerva Carcano. She, she, she went to one of their worship services and she's just like, this is not recognizably Christian. And she severed ties with them and then got crucified for it. She's been brought up on charges and they're not seeing the case through. It's really weird. Um, And then there's, there's like larger city churches that lean left, but they don't really have the numbers or the, the vigor that a lot of larger conservative churches do. I mean, there's clearly more life, more vibrancy and right-leaning evangelical flavored churches, Mm -hmm. but they, they don't evangelical conservatives. They don't value grabbing the levers of power and bringing everybody under their control. That's a leftist dream. That's a Marxist. Right, right, right. That's how progressivism works, right? You get the experts at the top and then the rest of us morons just have to follow along. So, (laughs) right, right. Um, so you just have these competing worldviews that that were bound together by a common structure. Um, and what was assumed all the way along was everybody was good faith participants and um, conservatives were too busy growing and enjoying the wealth and prosperity of their local churches. They didn't do the hard work of building connections and keeping their ear to the ground. Um, a, some of them did, and we have caucus groups like Good News and the Institute for Religion and Democracy who were ringing the alarm bell all the way through mm-hmm. and trying to wake people up. But um, a lot of conservative churches were fat and happy, cows of Bashan just getting fattened for the day of slaughter, and uh, it showed up, and they just couldn't believe it was here. A lot of them still can't believe it's here. A lot of churches still have their heads in the sand. And, yeah, a lot of conservative leaders are just saying, hey, you need to get out right now. If you don't, they will devour you. Where have you seen some glimmers of hope here, like good positive examples of churches, pastors, bishops who uh, held the line, still holding the line, uh, positive leadership? Uh, they prevented their congregations from going down this path, uh, guarded the sheep. Uh, do you see that going on as well? I'm assuming so, because you have this new denomination. So, yeah, there's been... There have been several examples of pastors and pastoral leadership teams that prepared their churches for what needed to be done. So on the conservative, so I'll speak to my annual conference. In my annual conference, the largest church by far was Asbury United Methodist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, they were thoroughly conservative. Their leadership, I mean, okay, so I think most people from your tradition would look at Asbury and say, they're still pretty liberal. Um, but they, they were <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Female pastors and right. Yeah. So they, they, they were still uh conservative for us and they sure. were prepared, uh, as soon as, um, it, it became clear that there was not going to be a protocol for peaceful separation. They busted out, they hired a lawyer, they put all their money in escrow. They tried to negotiate. Um, I'm actually going to be interviewing one of their pastors this Friday. I'll try and put it up next week. Oh, good. A bit about that process. But they they took a, a congregational vote that was well over 90 percent to disaffiliate. They got out of there as quick as possible. But I, I lift them up as uh, so I'm, I'm happy for them. But I've also been mad at them that they had all this wealth and infrastructure and they could have helped a lot more of us bust out. But they chose just to go on their own and let us fight our own battles on the way out. And with every wave that leaves, the, the contingent that is sympathetic to those who want to leave gets smaller. So what you have happening in a lot of annual conferences now is even though a lot of local churches go through the disaffiliation process, when they come to the council at the special called conference, the council refuses to ratify their disaffiliation. So that happened in Arkansas with three churches that went through the whole process. They put all the money together. They went through it faithfully. <laughs> they, they went through it faithfully, but um, uh, the conference said no. So there were ensuing lawsuits. And you're going to see more of that as conservative churches leave. And then a minority of conservatives remain or are trying to get out. And progressives are saying, no, no, we're losing too much money. Mm-hmm. The, these conferences have been in free fall uh, when you're talking about giving, when you're talking about attendance. Long before 2019, they were losing 4% a year. Mm-hmm. Since 2019, they've been losing like 20% a year, 30% really? a year. Really? Some conferences, yeah, they're in free fall. So they're looking at letting some of their most robust, healthy churches go. Now, in order to leave, they still have to pay like 
oh, I don't know. I think the average amount is like, oh, 90, 90% of their annual budget they, they need to give to the denomination, which which should add. I mean, it, it covers like two years of apportionments. Uh, that's our, our annual things right. that we send to them, as well as unfunded pension liabilities and sometimes health care costs sometimes a percentage of value on the building, all this, but they are still hemorrhaging money so that most of these conferences are not going to be solvent in another year, two, three, they're going to have to combine. They're going to have to lay off tons of staff. They're going to be on a skeleton crew as well. They're looking at the end for them. Um, and they're freaking yeah. out. They don't want, they're, they're not even thinking that far out. They're just thinking we cannot let them go. We hate them, but we can't let them go. And it's just this weird <laughs> schizophrenic place they're in. I got you because they're yeah they won't be funded. Uh, this is so interesting to me. There was an article in Christianity Today last week about the Southern Baptists and why they're diminishing in the same way that you just described what's happening in the Methodist Church, and they attribute it to forces uh, over the long term that are affecting all denominations, the secularization of the United States, things like that. And um, but but you know, the thing that I, I made the point in the last podcast I put out there, like this doesn't explain, though, the crazy uh, numbers from the last three years. I mean, it's like it tanked in the last three years in ways that it was not tanking the, in the decade previous. Yeah, the, the numbers were coming down, but it sounds like this is the same thing. You have churches since this 2019 uh, situation that it, it's it's just kind of snowballed to now where it's. Um, as, as you said, it's not sustainable yeah. um, for people who don't understand about the UMC polity still as much. Um, I want to make sure I'm right on this uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But the, the UMC then holds the property. They actually own the churches. Uh, so that's that's the legal fights that you're talking about is when yeah. there's a disassociation uh, and they have to give up 90 percent of their budget initially there. Um, when the church, when, when the um, the district or, or the denomination, I should say, says uh, you can't go, then what happens is they still hold on to that property. So it, it's a real estate thing going on here, too, right? It's real estate and assets. I mean, it's just anyone you've got in right. the bank, any endowments you have. Um, so, yeah, there is a small rural congregation in Mangum, Oklahoma, that had over half a million dollars in an endowment that they just had to say goodbye to when they disaffiliated because they were able to keep the property, but the endowment had been designated to the conference. So that's oh, not wow. quite the same thing. Um, if, yeah, usually if a conference ratifies the disaffiliation of a church, they take the building and financial assets. They have all the real estate and all the money. Um, but there are weird situations like that that happen where if, if the endowment was not set up appropriately to, to follow the congregation, if there's a split, then, yeah, they'll lose that endowment. Yeah. So it really it's amazing that a lot so many churches are willing to say goodbye to so much money in order to maintain their integrity. But um, well, I respect that. So so when this happens, though, because you had said before, under the 2019 terms, yeah. which were really meant for the, the liberals. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, those are the rules that the conservatives are now working under to. So, so they're, they're more or less generous. Is there a violation of that when, when churches are prevented from leaving? I mean, are there rules being broken uh, that, that so, are keeping them in? Yeah, with, within the, the language in the Book of Discipline that was added under the traditional plan, specifically the area of paragraph 2553 that allows for disaffiliation. In 2019, there, so everyone knows. Yeah. yeah, there is no language in that provision saying that the disaffiliation of a local church needs to be ratified by an annual conference. That's just what all the bishops started doing. I so see. much of this is is bishops or conference leadership or bureaucracy just taking the reins and saying, okay, we can work with this, but we're going to. Okay, so uh, this is all going to be tied up in court. We'll see. I mean, in some places it is what the dance that's um, OK. So there's a guy named Chris Ritter in the United Methodist denomination. He's pastor of Genesio United Methodist. He has a he has a a, a page, a blog called people need Jesus dot com dot net, maybe. And he chronicles just every development. Uh, he, he links everything going on. But he also writes his own articles. And in an article he wrote like six months ago, he compared the situation in the United Methodist Church to. Um, a room that we're all in and we suddenly find out there's a Nickelback concert about to happen and nobody likes Nickelback. So some of we're trying to bust out the doors, <laughs> but you have bouncers at the doors that don't, they extort you for fees. They barely got the doors open enough so that just the most desperate 
the most resource can get out, and then they're finally going to close the doors, and everybody's going to be trapped here and nickel back the rest of their stinking life. <laughs> That's actually a hysterical example. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good it's yeah, it's a good article. I wish I could recall off the top of my head the title of it, but that guy's name is Chris Ritter. He's he's a great guy, uh, yeah, yeah. man of integrity. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's essentially what's going on. If there were not financial repercussions, I'm fully convinced at least 60% of American churches would want nothing to do with the United Methodist Church. We're mm -hmm. going to see far fewer than that cut loose because they just don't, they're not liquid enough to even seriously entertain hmm. that. Um, hypothetically, they could take out loans um, in order to pay it off, but they're taking out on a loan, a loan on a building that technically doesn't belong to them. So the right. trust clause was established in the beginning by John Wesley because he wanted to preserve true Wesleyan doctrine. He didn't, in the event that there was a hostile takeover locally, he wanted to be able to maintain good doctrine and, and kick people out and maintain control of the real estate. What was just not foreseen was the notion that there might be a committed left that spurns the doctrine of Wesley that would mm -hmm. then take the levers of power and then alienate people true to our doctrinal heritage from our own property and assets. What's happened is is scandalous. Have you seen at the seminaries leading up to this, because this happened in the SBC, but uh, the uh, introduction of the, uh, I guess now it's called critical race theory, but at the time it was just, uh, they, they used terms like racial reconciliation and, um, and, and there was a soft peddling of, uh, uh, illegal migration and and how the Christian response is is only compassion, strong borders is bad. I mean, th there was a general liberalization. Uh, I would say strongly in 2016 in the SBC, and that I think helped pave the way or jumpstart some of this. I'm sure the story of, uh, in the UMC is different, and of course the issue they're splitting over is much more drastic, being um, sexual ethics, but. But did this start in the seminary, this this uh, wave, for lack of a better term? Um, OK, so source, the the original inkling towards this is uh, the Methodist revival began as a, a working class revival, uneducated lay pastors, circuit riders. But they they practice discipline, um, right. orderly lives, getting rid of vice and sin. And what that meant was massive wealth creation for people who revised their lives in that way. Um, so as soon as you found centralization and, and creation of wealth, you found the arising of elite um, culture within the Methodist movement. This is long before the United Methodist Church. Mm -hmm. The Methodist movement in America has gone through several different splits, but it's also had had large. At one point in America, one in three Americans were Methodist. We were a very successful evangelical movement, very serious, dedicated disciples. But wherever you had the creation of wealth, you had the arising of elite culture. Mm -hmm. And that coincided with the creation of many Methodist uh, higher education, not under not just undergrad, but seminaries. I attended the oldest United Methodist Seminary or um Boston University School of Theology is where I went. And that was uh, where we saw the rise of what was called Boston personalism under uh, the main Methodist theologian of the early 20th century, Borden Parker Bound, I think was his name. And all it was essentially was um, making sacred the subjective experience of the divine, which is rooted in the liberal German tradition, Freud, Bach, mm -hmm. and the rest of that mess. Um, they they despised uh, anything resembling a historical biblical ethic. They despised any kind of literal understanding of what John Wesley himself preached or the first generations of Methodists. And to um, our great shame as a movement, we made room for that tradition rather than kicking them right out. Conservatives chose to believe that there could be a, a synthesis or some kind of harmony and remember, especially in the 1940s and 50s, as the greatest generation came back from World War II, there was this weird time where everybody got along. They didn't have to go too deep to any extreme. They just stayed in the middle. But that was only ever uh, a temporary situation. Starting mm -hmm. in the 1960s with the Cultural Revolution, that was when the United Methodist Church was formed. And even though conservatives have always been a, a large majority on the, the grassroots level of Methodism, uh, even at that point, leftists started climbing the ranks and taking over the general boards and agencies. And there have been several chapters of just really scandalous um, lack of discernment all the way along. And conservatives, for our part, being um, socialized in the Sunday school movement of the 20th century, that to be Christian is to be nice. 
And so mm -hmm. we were essentially defanged from doing holy warfare within the body as it was consumed with an ideological cancer. Yeah, that, that was very well put. I, I think that was very succinct. I appreciate that. Uh, and, and that applies to so much more than just the Methodists. This is, I think, in the culture in general, just about every institution, you see a similar dynamic uh, where the, those who are, are want to do the right thing seem to be somewhat spineless. Um, now, you have a podcast where you talk about this kind of stuff. Is that I'm wondering if it's the same motive I had initially in, in starting my podcast. Was this to uh, warn other Methodists about what was going on and, and get the word out there? Uh, because I'm sure it's not doing you any favors or it didn't do you any favors with the, the elites in the UMC. Well, it's weird. When I first started it, um, I think my main goal was I just I got really frustrated with conservatives living in fear and cowardice. And I wanted to stick my head out and either become a martyr or become a model of what it what it means to speak the truth in love. I don't know if I'm coming off as loving tonight as I well, it's not like I, <laughs> no, yeah, I, I think I mean, you are. Yeah. I, I think I should say I do love these folks. I mean, um, I was raised by two liberal United Methodist clergy whom I love my parents yeah. um, who are a man and a woman. Um, but they <laughs> <laughs> you have to say thanks that. for clarifying that. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. And I, I love these folks. I grew up with these folks, a lot of liberal leaders within the church. I mean, I, I went to church camp and they loved me and they encouraged me. Um, so I, I'm very clear. I love these people, but I'm also very clear that leftism, liberalism, progressivism is toxic to the human spirit and creates death despite good intentions. So I live in a world yeah. where everybody has good intentions. The, the bad guys are not the ones with bad intentions. Um, we're all the bad guys. And then sure. Jesus is the only one who opens us up to um, um, his atoning blood, making us right with God. But we should never imagine that we are mm -hmm. good. So so that's that's Wesleyan doctrine. That's biblical doctrine. Sure. Um, so I, I have that love. And I started off with the loving intent to just model for conservatives. Hey, this is how John Wesley led. I mean, he was in a hostile environment in the Church of England, and mm -hmm. he, he boldly. Uh, witness to who Christ is and who he's calling us to be. Uh, early Methodists were regularly persecuted, beaten up, chased from town to town, hated, oh, yeah. reviled. Um, this is something that's in our DNA, but because we got obsessed with respectability, high pastoral salaries, uh, being in the seats of honor at the tables that that we sit at, a lot of conservatives just forgot what it was like, or maybe even never knew. Uh, well, yeah, a lot of the conservatives that knew how to stick their heads out, got their heads chopped off, or they just got fed up and they left. I was speaking figuratively. Nobody's been beheaded, but they, <laughs> they just got fired and canned. They got shown the road. They're canceled. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, so the only ones that are left generally are those that learned their place, learned to, to not speak too uh, brusquely or clearly or boldly to make room for others who could take offense. And so now they have to make these hard decisions and help their churches make these hard decisions. And they've been trained all their professional life not to have these kinds of conversations and they're terrified of it. So if they can just see me and listen to me, spend 20 minutes with me, 30, 40 minutes with me, thinking through these things, talking these things, then I'm hoping that that empowers them and gives some clarity and some calm to them as they realize they stand on the truth. The yeah, other side excellent. is you have this new Methodist tribe starting off that already is feeling the temptations of institutionalism, of accrued wealth and power, and I'm wanting to serve as um, an encourager for those in power in the global Methodist church. I'm wanting to serve as some kind of populist check on that so that they feel like others are really rooting for them, really watching them so that they have to establish the right culture on the front end so that we're not going through. I don't know if you followed the ACNA, uh, Anglican Church in North America. Yeah, yeah. Uh, church. A, a They're dealing bit. with a lot of the same crap that they left. Yeah. It followed them and they didn't put the controls in place to boot them out. So I'm, I'm one of these saying, hey, we need the controls in place, have the right culture, have the right theology, actually exercise church discipline so that we're not going through the same thing 10, 15 years down the line. Yeah, well, you love the truth, and that's I think that's obvious. Uh, so it's it's not a lack of love that I sense, or and I don't think anyone senses in you uh, for these the people, especially your parents. So, you know, I, I don't know if my stereotype is correct here, but I always kind of thought of uh, not just Methodists, but the uh, 
um, well, the, the standard liberal clergyman, like mainline, even liberal clergyman being kind of like Fred Rogers for some reason, like, sure, it, yeah. they're very gentle and kind and just, but the problem is underlining all of this is this idea that we're innately, we're good, we're perfectible, um, and through yeah, human, in, yeah. yeah, human ingenuity, we're going to get there. And, uh, so yeah, um, realized eschatology, you, you find in a lot of Methodist liturgies over the years, a notion that God's kingdom is already here and we're building the king, even an evangelical conservative. Oh, sure. Find people talking about building the kingdom. Um, they don't see that as all. So there's a lot of roots of liberal theology, even planted throughout evangelical uh, churches that are that are going to cause lots of problems throughout. It, but yeah, it, liberal clergy are perfectly nice when they're unchallenged. <laughs> as as the narrative became more prevalent yeah. that uh, right leaning bigotry is causing gay kids, trans kids to kill themselves, they became mm. much more militarized against people like me because it's no longer a polite disagreement among people. Yeah, you're killing polite. kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah your silence is violence, and words are you know are, are violence, and yeah. Yeah, we're, um, we've already seen United Methodist churches hosting uh, family-friendly drag shows. You know, there was one in um, uh, Nebraska about a month ago. And, in Nebraska, um, of all yeah, places, really? Yeah, Lincoln, Nebraska, yeah. Huh. And so, um, and it's not the only one. A lot of them managed to keep it hush-hush or, gee, it was hosted by somebody else. But this one partnered with a local gay advocacy group. So, um, yeah, there's there's it's just two completely different worldviews, different anthropologies, one believing in the fall, one believing that we're innately good. Um, yeah. uh, and it really is a doctrinal at its root um, difference. Uh, uh, article four of the Articles of Religion or no, Article seven says flat out that that man is fallen and very far gone from his original estate. And without the supernatural help of God can never be made right with God. We have it very clearly ensconced in our foundational doctrines. And they just ignore it. And and every year at annual conference, we ordain new clergy. We, the United Methodist Church, ordains new clergy who lie through their teeth as they swear they vow to uphold the book of discipline, that they find it to con conform to the word of God, the Bible. They just lie so that they can get mm -hmm. in and then upend not just the book of discipline, but the Bible. Final questions here. Um, what advice do you have for people still in the UMC, whether uh, at, at various levels, pastors, bishops, laymen? Uh, what what do you predict also is going to happen over the next, let's say, three years uh, in the United Methodist Church? Uh, what what do you see the the the, the stopping point or is there a stopping point? So what do I recommend to those left behind or currently in and might, might make it out? It would be to speak truth unafraid um, in your local church, but also to those in authority. So a lot of churches are in a defensive posture, just trying to keep their head down and make it through the disaffiliation process. I think the, the institution will use that against you. I think you have to take, um, uh, an offensive posture. So go through the disaffiliation process in earnest, but also uh, pick on the annual conference for lack of transparency. If there are clergy that have supposedly undergone discipline but haven't been published or punished, ask about those. Cast a light mm -hmm. on And then what they will say is, oh, that's confidential. We can't reveal that. But expose just how much um, uh, trust that betrays. Also, the vast majority of annual conferences don't do anything like a line item budget report. They don't report to you on where your money is going, how it's being spent necessarily, where it's being stored, how much of it there is, what reserves there are. Some annual conferences have designated reserves to offset the tremendous cost of disaffiliation. Conferences like mine in Oklahoma just simply refuse to even report what we had in reserves. So, uh, you know, if you put them on the defense, paragraph 722 stipulates that they have to have open meetings including the board of trustees um, in the annual conference, uh, insist on transparency and openness that they can deserve the trust that they're asking for. So put them on the defensive that way. Now, if you ask me to, that, that was my advice to what uh, mm -hmm. to say to them. If you ask me my predictions, um, I think anyone who tries to predict what's going to happen, is just crazy. <laughs> there are some people who do it. There are just so many moving parts and yeah. personalities and then like national politics who can who can uh, some people predict the the advance of media I, i'm not smart enough for that there is a centrist 
in Alaska, of all places. There aren't many Methodists up there named Lonnie Brooks, who who does not side with the right, but he's been warning that as soon as the evangelical conservative traditionalists are gone, um, the progressives are going to eat the centrist lunch because they it's it's an aesthetic of constant revolution, constant seeking perfection. It's, as I said, a neo-Marxist mm. um, mindset, right. whether or not they self-identify that way. Um, and yeah, so, it's a Galian. So the, the, the centrists are now the new conservatives. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to constantly find an enemy to attack and devour them and, 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 and also use that to seize control. So I, I think that's the most realistic scenario. I think, I think conservatives will be tolerated for a few years if they pay up and shut up, but eventually they'll be so alienated and demoralized that they'll just quit or go or get fired. And mm-hmm. then centrists will be, um, um, persecuted for not um, adhering to the the new orthodoxy. Um, this will be surrounded by anxiety around uh, declining money and power and uh, cultural cachet. And uh, then it'll just uh, become, I mean, what's going on with the PC USA nowadays? You know, what's going on with the yeah. Episcopal Church? They're, they're intenually, uh, continually just relegated to the outskirts of whatever American culture well, is seen as. Irrelevant. So you're you're thinking, I mean, the doctrine as it stands from 2019 with the traditional uh, uh, sexual ethic, I mean, that's going to be totally overturned uh, at some point then. So here's where I get, okay, so I just gave you the worst case scenario. I forgot about the best case scenario. Another reason why I started, if you go to my plain spoken channel on YouTube, you'll see that I've interviewed a lot of United Methodists from Africa, because as I told you, United Methodism is growing leaps and bounds in Africa numerically. They don't right. have a lot of money. Um, but uh, in 2024, they're meeting next year, and they're going to try and overturn the gay language. They're also going to try to pre- present some new legislation called the Christmas Covenant, where they isolate the United States and its doctrine from Africa and its doctrine. So what they're saying here is, okay, y'all be homophobes over there. You can have, but you let us be liberal over here. We'll leave each other alone. We'll still send you money. Uh, uh, and the African bishops hmm. get to stay in place. So the African bishops are trying to get their people to sell out on their own theology. And it's a real question how many Africans they can win over to um, their side. Right now, the United Methodist Church is not letting any churches outside of the United States disaffiliate. Um, they, they found something to pick on or interpret in the Book of Discipline. I think they're just racist or they don't want to be exposed as ethnocentric and so they're holding on to worldwide churches that want to go this is so much bigger of a picture than we can do in this amount of time but anyway (laughs) what i'm hoping is that the african church can uh, they will shut down the christmas covenant that regionalizes they might lose the battle on sexual ethics but as they continue to grow and america continues to wane i think they can do a hostile takeover if the of the denomination if they can hold on and be patient and suffer the fools of the west a little bit longer the question is if they can suffer us much longer because Americans are quite insufferable as we export <laughs> around the world. They'd rather just be, yes. done with us, you know? Yeah. I don't blame them for that. That That's an interesting scenario. If that happens, I'm wondering if the people who have left would make their way back. Wouldn't uh, that probably. be wonderful? I mean, that's, it would be. So, yeah. I'm an ecumenist. I believe that um, uh, Jesus was serious whenever he prayed that the church would be one. And I believe that he meant that much more literally than most people choose to believe today. So I want to participate in a future where we got people coming together. And I know that sounds very idealistic and silly after all the church history that we have, but I just don't see any other options. So I, I really want for Methodism to come together. I, I even, I don't have a problem with reformed believers and a lot of Wesleyans do. Mm -hmm. I just think, I think we're, we're, we're splitting hairs a lot of the time. So I'm ready to come together with, with people with hearts of peace who are, are submissive to Christ Jesus and his words. So I, I'm very hopeful that the United Methodist Church and the Global Methodist Church can can reunite after there's a purge. I just knew that for right now, I didn't have a role to play in the United Methodist Church anymore, so I needed to get out. There, there is certainly, I think that's happening organically, like what, what you're talking about. The true believers tend to find each other, and I've been in my travels going to churches where you have like Presbyterians and Baptists side by side, and because they, they know that... <laughs> The other options are to totally sell out on the, the created order, like fundamental things that no that, that are just basic orthodoxy. It's coming down to just basic things that. Um, so I, yeah, in a sense, it's I guess that while the situation is kind of dismal, 
uh, that's that that is bringing this about there is an encouraging element to it that that you i i am seeing those walls broken down already um and and a lot of cooperation happening but um yeah yeah that, i mean look god can do anything and maybe that that scenario you just described which was a whole lot better will come about let's pray that that it does and, and uh, i appreciate and, you're one yeah. of the first people that's willing to be optimistic with me about that most of the methodists i talk to are just saying no nah, man you're dreaming so thanks for well dreaming. and i'm not in the denomination so i have <laughs> yeah. yeah i don't have all that uh battle fatigue from from that you know if this, in the southern baptist i feel that way because i do have more battle fatigue from that and um you know, I, I even think there, though, I mean, it is possible. Like, I, I'm never going to say that God can't do something. That That's a, a big mistake. So, um, but I appreciate what you're doing, um, Jeffrey. And if people want to find out more about your podcast or your ministry, where should they go? So, yeah, I'm on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify if you just want to listen. Um, and I, I post something two, three times a week. Um, my church is, my church in Nowata, N-O-W-A-T-A, uh, Methodists, we're also on Apple Podcasts, and we have our, our weekly sermons, but you really should find your own church. Um, but you can listen to me if you want to. But I'm also on YouTube and on Facebook, and um, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook just by looking up my name. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of all, all right. Over. We'll go follow uh, Jeffrey Rickman on Twitter and Facebook, and uh, thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Appreciate you, John. Keep up the good work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.